This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Shootings in Louisiana, Minnesota, and Texas last week have brought to the forefront once again the often tense relationship between police and communities of color. Through CPR's Public Insight Network, we're asking Coloradans to tell us what these events say about our country today and about your own community. Let's get three perspectives now from Nick Metz, chief of police in the diverse city of Aurora, from Vincent Bowen, a member of Black Lives Matter 5280, which in the aftermath of the shootings is conducting a 135-hour vigil in downtown Denver, and from Nick Mitchell, independent monitor for the city of Denver. He is the civilian overseer of the police and sheriff's departments. And gentlemen, welcome to the program So what do last week's events tell you about this country today and uh, maybe more specifically your community? And Vince, Black Lives Matter, I'd like to have you start. Sure. And uh, thank you for uh, having us here, Ryan. Thank you, folks, for uh, coming together to talk. Um, You know, I think that they are reflective of an underlying uh, problem. We have a uh, country that was founded uh, on the principle of uh, exploiting and devaluing black life. Um, We have police forces that uh, have evolved from slave patrols, certainly not saying that's where they are today, but that's uh, deep in our history. Um, And it's embedded in our DNA that uh, we have a very uh, different view of what black people are like as opposed to people who are not black. Uh, It results in a 12-year-old boy, Tamir Rice, being viewed as an officer as a 20-year-old, it involves or it, it results in uh, Michael Brown, who was the same size as the officer that shot him, being viewed as superhuman. Um, and it, it involves people consistently uh, judging black people as being inherently dangerous. And so it sounds like the events last week uh, are not particularly revelatory to you, but they are confirming of how you have already viewed your country. Uh, yes, that's correct. And, and uh, you know, let's, let's be honest here. We cannot expect uh, a group of people to go into communities whose resources have been stripped, where the economic activity, in fact, the very life of people um, is criminalized. For example, right to rest. In many places, you can't sit down and cover yourself uh, unless it's a crime or it is a crime if you do that. So as a result of many of these things, um, you have a difficulty existing in this country if you are a black person, particularly of uh, modest means, but it doesn't matter. Chief Metz, what do the events last week tell you about your country and your community? Uh, it tells me we have a hell of a lot of work to do. Um, I don't think since Rodney King, at least in my lifetime, have I seen anything that has created uh, the level of divisiveness, not only between the community and the police, but just um, the, just the country in general. And I don't, I don't think it matters what side of the political spectrum you're on. This is a very unusual election year. Um, and I think there's a lot of fear out there right now. And I think the police have been put into that. And the police have off, off kind of like what was said earlier, we're, we're put into situations where years ago weren't our responsibilities, such as handling mental health and dealing with a lot of so, social issues. Those things now have been thrust upon police. And so that creates even more um, angst um, between police and the community. At the same time, what's incredibly important is not allowing this this week to go by without honoring 
everyone who has been impacted by violence to come together and really talk about what those issues are and to have those difficult conversations. Are you in Aurora taking extra steps to protect your officers after what happened in Dallas? We are. I mean, it's from the standpoint of, you know, we're putting out safety reminders and we're, we have a few strategies in place. At the same time, what we is don't, a safety reminder? Just give me an just example. Just basically, you know, be careful. Um, you know, safety in numbers, you know, make, make sure radio and other officers know where you are at all times, those type of things. But at the same time, um, th- that, uh, that message is also do not pull back from the community. We have been stressing the importance of engagement, not just from specialty officers who specialize in community engagement, but our patrol officers. Get out of the cars, meet with people on the streets, go into the churches, go into the schools. Do not be shy about having those, these difficult discussions because right now there's no more of an important time to have that. And we can't afford to pull back and and hunker down, if you will, and pretend that you know, everything is okay, because we understand it's not. Nick Mitchell, Independent Monitor for the City of Denver, the civilian oversight position of police and sheriffs in the city and county. What do the recent events tell you about your community and your country? Well, it tells me, uh, for one, that that we really do have a long way to go. Uh, You know, policing as a profession, uh, I think, has, um, there's been some really notable progress in recent years in policing, a focus on de-escalation, a focus on force avoidance, at least in some departments in the United States, uh, but I think a lot of other agencies in the U.S. need to uh, need to get on board, uh, need to focus on um, improving the quality of policing in America. Uh, and I think we in Denver have have work to do. You know, I think there has been some progress in Denver. We have some continued work to do on that score, uh, and also, frankly, uh, building stronger relationships between uh, young people in particular and police officers has been uh, a consistent focus of mine. Uh, There has been real significant buy-in from the Denver Police Department uh, on that issue. And why young people? Uh, Because, you know, that's where it all begins. Uh, And, you know, in, in 2013, uh, we, in my office, you know, of course, we track patterns and complaints and uses of force, and we observed a real significant uptick in the number of concerns being articulated by uh, young people and their family members about uh, good kids having really bad interactions with police officers. Mm. Uh, and, and it often appeared to be um, miscommunication, uh, both from the, the side of the police officers and and the young kids. Uh, and we saw a lot of good kids ending up in handcuffs in the back of uh, police cars in situations that may uh, may have been avoidable. And, and how does miscommunication lead to that? What you sometimes see is a little bit of uh, mutual escalation. You know, you so, teenagers are, uh, you know, can be unpredictable. Their brains don't necessarily work in the same way that adult brains do. Uh, and so what we've focused on in my office is developing an outreach program uh, in 2013, grant-funded, uh, to really begin to, to uh, provide training to police officers in Denver on de-escalation with young people uh, and adolescent brain development, and to provide training to kids on um, uh, their rights and also their responsibilities when in contact with law enforcement. So Vince from Black Lives Matter, what you heard there from Nick Mitchell, at least in terms of the city and county is in De- of Denver, is that there has been been some progress in terms of de-escalation, in terms of communication. Do you sense that progress? Uh, Yes. I mean, I sense that there's efforts. Um, I think at the same time, there are such horrific um, circumstances uh, that then 
set those efforts backwards. I mean, um, you know, Michael Marshall, uh, example, and this is not DPD or obviously Aurora, but the the young man that was killed in, in the jail, 100-pound, mentally ill man who was killed by officers uh, who did not de-escalate, who took a man who was having a psychotic episode and, and uh, three officers uh, put their weight on him and he ended up dying of asphyxiation and a heart attack, I believe. So, uh, examples are Jesse Hernandez, a woman who, a young girl who was uh, 19 years old in a, a car uh, in an alley um, with her friends, car allegedly stolen, but still um, kids, what kids do, as Nick said, kids don't always think correctly. Uh, and instead of, um, you know, stopping the situation, it escalated to a shooting where the young woman was shot for six, uh, six times in the front of the car. And the car was moving away from the officer. Let me ask you this, uh, Vince. Does Black Lives Matter see itself in solidarity with Latinos, especially in this part of the country, uh, other people of color? Yeah, I mean, we're very much in solidarity with people who are experiencing the uh, legacy of uh, devaluation, the legacy of violence. Um, And, you know, Nick made a point. He said that uh, you see good kids ending up in the back of cars. Not to diminish Nick's point, but uh, we're all humans. We're all people. Um, And, you know, sadly, uh, we are not allowed oftentimes to be differentiated as good or bad, uh, quote unquote. Uh, But we should all be uh, viewed as another human being and loss of life of a human being should not happen. And we should have the opportunity all to be judged by a jury of our peers, not by folks in the street with badges. Chief Metz from Aurora, you were subtly nodding there. (laughs) I wonder how you view, uh, as an African-American, as a father and a law enforcement official, how you relate to groups like Black Lives Matter. Well, first of all, I think it's incredibly important that whether it's a chief or department as a whole, you have, as I said earlier, you have to be willing to have those difficult conversations and you have to be willing to have have those sit-downs, even with groups who tend to maybe be critical of the police. Um, you know, we have worked and met with Black Lives Matter on several occasions. Uh, we stay in communication as much as possible. Let me um, say that shortly after you took the job in Aurora, an unarmed black man, mm-hmm. Nichelis Vinzant, was killed by one of your officers. Uh, that did not lead to a, an indictment on the officer's behalf, but that, that is something you almost mm-hmm. immediately dealt with as chief. Right. Well, we dealt with it from a number of ways. We dealt with it from making sure that we got out to the community, particularly the black community and the Latino communities. We made sure that we took a very hard look at our use of force policies and our internal investigation policies. And did, we've done- Did you change anything? Considerable. Uh, considerable reforms to our policies. Give me an example. Uh, for example, on our in our use of force policies, we've taken a tiered approach in how we investigate. Before, um, if an officer used force, depending on that level of force, there were some situa- cases where it was never documented as force. So now every use of force has to be documented, has to be screened by a supervisor, has to be reviewed now by a force review board that... And that might establish patterns, I guess. Exactly. So you're able to see what patterns may be... Uh, uh, coming. You you can look at training issues and also look at whether or not we need to make more tweaks to our existing use of force policies. We've also did some things with our internal affairs policies. We moved internal affairs out of headquarters to a standalone location because people felt coming into internal affairs was um, 
It was like walking through the gauntlet. You had to actually go by the front desk officer and all this stuff to make a complaint. Mm. Um, and then we've also added more individuals or more sergeants to our internal affairs so that there are more investigators so that those cases can be completed in a much timelier manner. There was some talk a while back of having an independent monitor in Aurora, the likes of which Denver has. Where does that stand? You know, be honest with you, since I've been here, I've not heard that discussion. All right. I want to tackle the question of, of you know, we've talked about good and bad here. What it means if there is a bad officer, a bad apple, as, as it's been dubbed in some of these conversations, and how easy it is to remove him or her from a force. Uh, so let's pick up the discussion after a break. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner, and we're talking about the tense relationship between police and minority communities right now with Nick Metz. He's chief of police in the diversity of Aurora. Vincent Bowen also joins us, a member of Black Lives Matter 5280, which in the aftermath of the shootings last week is conducting a 135-hour vigil in downtown Denver. And Nick Mitchell joins us. He's independent monitor for the city and county of Denver, so the civilian overseer of the police and sheriff's departments. And I want to ask you, Nick Mitchell, about the ability of a force to get rid of cops who have bad records, who make consistently wrong decisions when it comes to use of force. How straightforward is that? You know, well, it's actually a fairly uh, complicated process, uh, and you know, much of the much of the research nationally on officer misconduct tends to validate the principle that uh, a small minority of the officers on any particular force are generally responsible for an outsized percentage of the complaints. Uh, problematic uses of force, and often lawsuits against that department. Uh, And so one of the challenges, I think, for any police department is, uh, first off, identifying who those people are. uh, And that's not at all to say that the organizational culture as a whole doesn't matter. It does matter, and people are shaped by the organization that they're a part of. So you must also focus on, you know, policy and training, uh, as well as identifying those potentially problematic officers. Um, If you have identified them, uh, there's a you know there are a lot of legal rights that come into play. Uh, there's a civil service process, so you know when a police officer is terminated in the city and county of Denver, he or she has the right to appeal to uh, this to a hearing officer of the civil service commission. There are then appeals potentially to the full civil civil service commission, uh, to the district court, to the court of appeals, and and uh, and on and on, and, and it can go. So it can be a very difficult and time consuming process. How often does it happen that someone is is dismissed? Uh, you know, it happens uh, throughout the year. You know, I publish a, an annual report that includes lots of information and detail about the significant um, uses of force and other disciplinary cases, and, and uh, we have all of those statistics. Uh, every year, you know, a certain number of police officers are terminated and a certain number are suspended and, and reprimanded, and, and we include all of that data in our report. And is it a process you wish were easier or do you think is, is justified? Uh, so I, I think that... Um, there have been some improvements to the process, to, to streamlining it, but I think there's more work to be done. Some of the appeals uh, that uh, have gone on and, and actually continue to go on are years old. There have been appeals to multiple levels of courts, uh, and it's simply it's, it's an unwieldy process that needs to be reformed. Chief Metz, what would you add? 
I, I think Nick, the other Nick over there, um, I think he answered pretty much what I would have said. I think, uh, you know, there are challenges to that. But I think the point that he also made, which is important, is that the officers that we tend to have the problems with are the officer is a very small uh, percentage of the department. And one of the things that I was really heartened by when I came to Aurora and I went to the briefings and I sat down with the officers and I talked about what my philosophy was about discipline, when I talked about my philosophies about community engagement, I actually expected to get eye rolls or, you know, here we go. I got buy-in very quickly. Our officers are out there doing a very, very good job. And I think for the most part, law enforcement in the in the Aurora-Denver metro area uh, does a very good job of reaching out to the community, um, doing those difficult, having those difficult conversations, doing a very difficult job, um, um, oftentimes having to make these decisions, you know, obviously under split-second decisions. Just the other day, in fact, Friday, just after everything has been going on in Baton Rouge and, Louis- and uh, Minneapolis, outside of Minneapolis and, and uh, Dallas, one of our officers had a situation where they responded to a call where a man had shot into a motel room, an African-American man. The officer found him. The guy was running. The officer used, you know, the de-escalation skills that have been at, talked about here, um, got this young man, who I think was 17 or 18, to drop the gun and avoided, you know, a, you know, a violent outcome. Um, those are the things that happen all the time. Our, our, our problem is we probably don't publish it as much as we should, because those situations happen all the time where officers find themselves in situations where deadly force probably could have been legally justified, but they they took the extra steps in trying to have that communication and giving folks that time to make the right decision. I want to share a perspective I heard on NPR's Morning Edition today, that the shootings of African-American men last week and then of police officers, all highly publicized, has led to something of a... Uh, a humbling on both sides and that this series of events may be a chance at real dialogue with these events happening in concert. What do you think of that? Vincent oh, from Black I, Lives Matter. I, I think that, uh, I think that we were talking about this, um, at our vigil and, and there definitely felt like there was a tipping point. Um, I, I heard from people in Dallas that the uh, rally there, there was a lot of uh, officer and uh, civilian interactions, officer protester interaction, and a lot of empathy on both sides. And and I think, and I, and I want to make this point. I think it's tragic that as we were starting this dialogue, of course, another tragedy happened. And uh, again, we have to be very clear. We have to separate that tragedy from the work of Black Lives Matter. That was an individual who uh, was acting on their own. and um, You're speaking of Dallas. Yeah, I'm case. speaking of Dallas, and I'm speaking of the shooter. And I think we have who, to who continue to talk. It appears was, was ro- racially motivated. Yes, yeah. but racially motivated by his individual actions. And we have to separate that from the actions of a group that's uh, interested in uh, non- nonviolent uh, protests. Let me just read a quick quote from an uh, article talking about this notion of interactions happening and lots and lots of interactions between police and the black community. Um, this is by K.L. Williams, who's a uh, retired officer. He said, on any given day in any police department in the nation, 15% of officers will do the right thing no matter what is happening. 15% of officers will abuse their authority at every opportunity. The remaining 70% could go either way, depending on whom they are working with. And I think that this speaks to a generally decent group of people who are put in situations where they are not 
capable of, they are not uh, culturally uh, predisposed to handling it properly. And one other thing, Philando Castile, the young man who was killed in Minnesota, had 52 traffic stops before he reached this horrible uh, conclusion of his life. When you're interacting with lethal force carrying officers that much, something's bad is bound to go is bound to happen and that happens in the black community far too much i think we have to talk about video and the fact that what makes these uh, incidents in st paul and baton rouge so high profile is that they were caught on tape uh, obviously there is the deployment of police body cameras that's happening nick mitchell uh, to a greater degree in in denver correct that's right uh, where does that stand uh, so that's the, there was a pilot program in 2014 to outfit you know, one particular patrol district with body cameras, uh, and uh, my office did a very detailed analysis of uh, some uh, the successes and the challenges associated with that pilot. Uh, in particular, uh, you know, we found that there were a significant number of, u- of uses of force that occurred during the pilot that weren't captured by body cameras. Uh, we made a series of policy recommendations to the Denver Police Department uh, about which, when to have them on and off. I guess about when to when to have them on and off, how to deal with the privacy concerns associated with the use of body cameras in uh, houses of worship, hospitals, patient care areas, and and other issues. Uh, And uh, the police department has uh, acquired a a significant number of cameras, and they're they're now being deployed throughout the department. I think uh, roughly half of the the patrol force now has body cameras, and the rest will be outfitted by the end of the year. And in neighboring Aurora, where do cameras stand, Chief Metz? So just this last... uh Last May, we finished our uh, deployment of body cams, so every uniformed officer and uh, um, special tactical officer has a body camera. Um, I think what's important also here is when body cameras first came on the market or, you know, everybody was talking about it, there was a lot of hesitation by officers by wanting to have them. It was the kind of the big brother thing. I can tell you right now our officers have embraced it. In fact, when our when the deployment slowed down a little bit because of trying to get the cameras in because they were competing, competing agencies wanting them, our officers were saying, where's my camera? And we've had several situations where people have come in and have made false complaints against officers that we were actually able to prove very quickly were, you know, were, were false complaints. At the same time, there have also been... Um, uh, there's also been video captured that has shown officers not in the best light, and then we'll take steps to rectify that. And so it cuts both ways. Very briefly, Vincent, on video and mm-hmm. civilians, what what are your recommendations? Well, my, my uh, what, what we're hearing from community is that, you know, video sort of documents what we already know. We saw Rodney King on video. We saw... Um, you know, these two incidents on video. And we really have to take a deep look at this notion of a defense for officers being, I feared for my life. If we live in a constant state of fear of black and brown people, how can we have officers use lethal force whenever, not whenever, but how can they say that I feared for my life as a defense being a valid way to adjudicate these matters, even if we see it on, on video? Chief Metz, reflect on that just really quickly before we go. Well, you know, I, I don't think I feared for my life is a, for lack of a better term, a good enough excuse. I mean, there are steps that are in place to review that force. Uh, the Constitution says that the force used has to be reasonable and necessary. But there also, you know, in, in our city, um, we have to go through a, um, a series of reviews, whether it's um, teaming up with another agency to help us investigate that. In the uh, Vincent Carter one that you talked about earlier, uh, there was the grand jury. 
Um, and I get that sometimes decisions are going to come down that either, you know, the community may not agree with, the department may not agree with, but there are there are a series of checks and balances. It just doesn't stop with, I feared for my life. But of course, that's the key moment when the decision is made that affects sure. someone's life. Mm-hmm. Gentlemen, thanks so much for being with us. We appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. That's Chief Nick Metz of the Aurora Police Department, Nick Mitchell, Denver's Independent Monitor, and Vincent Bowen, a member of Black Lives Matter 5280. We want to hear from you. What do the shootings in Baton Rouge, St. Paul, and Dallas tell you about your community and the country right now? Answer through our Public Insight Network. Head to cprnews.org and scroll down to the gray box. Click Learn More. Again, share your insight through the Public Insight Network at cprnews.org. This is Colorado Matters. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Let's meet a man now who sees the tensions between police and communities of color from a unique vantage point. Henry Allen spent 13 years as a sheriff's deputy in El Paso County. He now heads the Pikes Peak chapter of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. That's a civil rights group that nationally traces its roots back to Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And Henry, welcome to the program. Good morning. Thank you for having me. You have a large family, and I want to know what you tell your kids and grandkids about interacting with police. First of all, I would tell them to obey the law. Uh, if they feel that their rights has been violated or they were mistreated or maltreated with law enforcement, uh, follow the law, follow the rules, obey the law enforcement officer, and bring it to granddad and dad because then we will... Uh, we will uh, research that that issue. Anything else you'd tell them about staying safe? That, that we we are living in turbulent times. Uh, everyone is appears to be on edge, both civilian and law enforcement. And uh, just that, honestly, we 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 live in a great country. There are some there are some law enforcement officers uh, uh, on the streets that may not should be there. So just just be careful. Uh, be mindful of your surroundings. And again, obey the rules while you're out and about. Do you think this is a problem that's getting worse or one that we're just hearing more about? Until last Tuesday, I thought it was something that we were just hearing about. But uh, as I said, in uh, the, the killing of law enforcement officers in Dallas, which was the worst loss of law enforcement since 9-11, I, I think at this time we are at a we had a turn road. Uh, it's getting worse, and until someone, uh, all of us, take the time to take a breather, take a step back, and and look at this, uh, we, we I, I do I believe we we're going to spiral out of control, and 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 I'm not reassured where where that's going to lead us as as a nation. Hmm. What does take a step back mean? You know, I, I take a step I, back. You know, we, we have rules and laws, and, and I understand the frustration of, of many black citizens across the country because what has, what has appeared to them is that the criminal justice system has not worked for them, and what they are believing in their mindset. What I, I take from that is that they have yet seen another killing of two African American men at the hand of law enforcement, and. Will this be a call to justice to hold those law enforcement officers accountable, or will the system, as they see it, 
will the system again hide and justify the killing of these uh, two African-American men. So we do have a court system in place. I would ask that everyone take a stance back, allow the process of investigating, allow the process of decision-making, and allow the process to to move into the, the court system. And if I may, one prime example here in Colorado, in, in, in one of its uh, western towns, uh, on, the, on the western slope, a, a young uh, man was killed by law enforcement, and they found that law enforcement officer guilty. And and now he's gonna he is going to face the punishment of his crime for taking an unarmed innocent life. Will you take me back to when you were a sheriff's deputy in El Paso County for many years? Did you encounter what was plainly to you bias among officers? Yes, and 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 even at the uh, even at the leadership uh, level, uh, I'm not real sure. Unbeknownst to some, that I when I left the sheriff's office uh, in uh, in 2012, uh, I, I wrote an article uh, that was published in the Gazette, and I expressed my concerns about the way African Americans and, and and Hispanics were treated in 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 the office under the current sheriff, and and what I said was that. They were not being promoted. Uh, they were not being assigned equally. And for 12 years, under the leadership of the current undersheriff, uh, African-Americans were not allowed to come to patrol. And patrol is seen to be one of the elite uh, segments of the organization. But when I said that, I was looked at as or referred by the previous sheriff as a disgruntled employee and wanted to see his wife, who was also employed at the sheriff's office, wanted to see her promoted. But yet, several years, two and a half years later, after uh, the, we saw this debacle with the, uh, with the uh, former sheriff, when his, when, his current, when his leadership spoke out, then the community took heave, and, and now we see what it is. And what I'm saying is that sometimes when black citizens speak out, everyone needs to take a time and look. It's not a, it's not a, uh, a binge of hateful or we disgruntled. It's, it's that we tell the truth and, it, and why should it take someone of other color to bring that truth out to the community? And to be clear, you're talking about the, the previous sheriff in El Paso County. Um, as you said, you retired some years ago. And um, I, I do wonder, at the time when you were working and, and talking to fellow deputies, mm-hmm. did they express frustrations about what it was to work in a minority community? Yes. I mean, <laughs> unfortunately, it was. During my time there, uh, you have to also understand that I was only one of two African-Americans that was assigned to, again, patrol. And again, to explain patrol, patrol is out in a car having contact uh, with the citizens. So uh, it, it was a frustration to, to them, but it was also more of a frustration to the community because uh, they were kind of fed up also or disappointed that each time a law enforcement officer would come into their community, it didn't look like them, and and, and they were they were in, in sometime in shock in the southeast corridor of the city. Well, when I, when I became a law enforcement officer, so the frustration of working in that community by white officers was also shared by the frustration of the community uh, because there was anyone that never looked like them, and it was also someone to them that came in with heavy-handed action, and and some of the uh, officers were. In, in, in my estimate, and only in my estimate, were afraid. Uh, they, they were afraid to go into some of those communities 
and, and, and deal with those and deal with uh, African-Americans and, and Hispanics. What do you think they were afraid of? You know, and and this is also, this is things, I'm just, in Henry Allen's opinion, if you never lived around people of different race or you, you, you never had to really intermingle with people of different race, there, 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 there's, a, there's a sense of fear when the, when the news media continue to push the violence that, that African-Americans are inflicted on each other and the violence in the African-American community uh, so, or the drugs in the African American community and the poverty in the African American community, you continue to see that played out on on social media or media. Uh, th- that tends to put a little bit of fear in a person that's sworn to protect and serve. When he go into it, he he automatically think that this is he going into a violent situation. Now, this is not a, this is not all of my uh, all of my law enforcement uh, friends uh, at the office, but it's it's a number of them. I want to thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Henry Allen is a former El Paso County Sheriff's Deputy, now president of the Pikes Peak Chapter of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. And we'll be right back with a bolder man who has found a unique way to help Syrian refugees. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. On Skype, two families made an unlikely connection across the world on Friday. Hello? Hello. Okay, perfect. In a suburb of Baltimore, husband and wife Steve Phillips and Kim Tosowski sat huddled together in their living room, a framed picture behind them, and peered into their computer's camera. Meanwhile, in Lebanon, two Syrian refugees peered back. Fardur al-Jassim and her niece Ikhlas sat in chairs against a blank wall. All four smiled and started chatting through an interpreter. It's really hot. <laughs> oh, how hot is it? What is the temperature there? Actually, it's around 33 degrees Celsius. Hmm. Oh, that is hard to take. Yeah. So Ramadan is over. Were the children able to get clothes for the um, celebration? Ikhlas's brother Khalid couldn't join in. He was under the weather after Ramadan. Kim feels a real affinity for him. I related so much to him. He looks so much like my grandson. And whatever we can do, we would like to help improve and see the family move forward bit by bit. These families connected through an organization founded by Andrew Barron of Boulder. He wanted to help some of the 9 million Syrians who've left their country since the civil war broke out five years ago. Andrew, welcome to the program. Thank you very much. I want to explain further um, who this family is in Lebanon. Khalid and Ikhlas are both teenagers. Farood is their aunt. They also live with two other aunts and their grandmother in a tent in a refugee camp. And they connected with the couple in Maryland through your online platform, which is called Human Wire. Can you describe how it works briefly? Sure. Uh, Human Wire is a, is a platform that enables a direct connection between the donor and the recipient. So basically, it's like removing the charity from the situation and putting the, the two people together to sort of work everything out. And when you do that, what kind of assistance can be provided? Is it just money? 
Uh, no, actually, uh, money's just uh, the very beginning of everything. Uh, typically, uh, a host will will uh, raise money for a family, and then they get to decide how to distribute the funds. And so they can order our our group around to, for example, take care of medical needs or to buy certain items that the family might need, and they can work together to figure out what will exactly be the best use of the funds. So you have some access and presence on the ground to help make that happen. Exactly. Because that isn't something that a family in Maryland would necessarily know <laughs> how to do. Right, exactly. We've set up um, uh, an office and a, and a team there to, to manage all of the distributions and information requests and everything that a host may want to do to help. I understand even that um, hosts have opened their professional networks set up meetings uh, with with those, offer legal help, for instance. Yeah, it's incredible. It's kind of like democratizing the way in which we can provide support um, by, again, by removing the organization from the, from the formula. It just sort of brings it back to just a regular human scenario as if you are just helping your family. And is there some kind of a accountability of how the money is spent or whether it goes to a good cause, whatever a good cause means? That's what's really neat, too, is that the host is always in control and has oversight over everything so that when they raise the funds, then they order the a distribution based on the exact penny that they want. So if they decide that they want to get the family into an apartment and to buy some food and maybe get the kids into school, those costs are figured out. They see the actual receipts, and then they approve each cost, and then we go ahead and distribute the money based on their orders. With Human Wire's help, yeah. And and Kim told us that so far they've sent clothing, raised about $1,700. They sent food for Ramadan, helped Fardur pay off debt, and make rent. Because uh, in many of these refugee camps, you've got to make rent, don't you? Yeah, uh, it's surprising that they actually pay for their tent spaces, uh, one of the neatest things about that is that the um, uh, that again the way that this is sort of democratized it allows for all kinds of interesting success stories and then others can learn from the success stories of how other families and hosts came together and start to replicate that. Give me an example. Um, well, we had uh, one family that they were never they never had their own shop in Syria but they had spent years and years working as tailors and they knew everything about tailoring so the host decided to get them some sewing machines and some cloth and they started to create clothes that they could then take to market and sell so we're seeing a lot of entrepreneurial efforts like this uh, another good example is a family had uh, decided that what uh, they could do best was if they could just rent a car and get an initial inventory of fruits and vegetables to put in the trunk. They could drive around and sell, which is a common uh, type of thing that people do in Lebanon. And so the host was able to get them a car and the inventory. And now they've kind of got their own business and are able to regenerate their inventory. And they become examples of what is possible in this really difficult environment. Exactly. Your, your wife is Lebanese, I understand. Mm -hmm. Is that what got you started with Human Wire? Yeah, it is. Um, we, I had always been visiting Lebanon. And since the beginning of the war in Syria, I was always noticing the effect that it had on the Lebanese people and, and seeing sort of the increase of the population and the trials and the tribulations. And I always wanted to, to do something, but I could never quite think of, 
you know, what it was that I could do. And then I just kind of had an epiphany one night, which was exactly human wire and just sat down, built it and launched it. And and now we're here. And how do you find refugees and get them into the network? I mean, that's a lot of people to choose from. Yeah, that's the easiest part, actually. As you know, there's 65 million people displaced around the world. Uh, while we've started in in Lebanon due to the my familiarity with the with the region, uh, we're now also operating in in Jordan and Turkey, and we also um, uh, have a um, have started to establish work with some families in Malaysia, and we're pretty much. Uh, looking to to help anywhere we can around the world. But again, when you go into such a massive place, how do you begin to say, we'll put you in touch with a family and not you? you Yeah. Um, Well, just because we're small and we've just started up, uh, we went to go locate some of the most desolate camps where people are just the most forgotten and receive the least amount of resources and just literally went to the camp and started signing people up. You went? Uh, well, I, at first I hired somebody from afar, um, but then, yeah, I went, I, I followed up. and um, What stands out in your mind from, from a visit like that? You know, uh, I think that the most important thing to realize is that the, the missing piece that, um, that, that people in this situation um, are lacking, it's the, um, the lack of a network. We take for granted that when times are tough, we might have enough wherewithal ourselves to pull ourselves out or we have some family or some friends. There's got to be somebody around the country where you could go and stay with them for a week if things were that bad. But here you've got people that literally have nobody to call, nobody to explain anything about how things work, nobody to ask for $5, and they're just literally stuck and without – having a connection to the rest of the world or to a network, um, it's just such a night and day difference. So that's one of the most powerful things that Human Wire actually brings is a group of people that becomes a network of people who are there to say, hey, we're here for you. And if there's something comes up in the future that's really horrible, well, you know, we know you now, so we can start to work on this together. So how many families have you been able to help thus far through Human Wire, which is based in Boulder? Well, we've touched uh, over a thousand refugees now with some kind of support. And will some of those get asylum? Oh, yeah. Um, And some of them have actually denied asylum. We had a family that uh, was offered an opportunity to come to the United States and they decided they didn't want to. They wanted to wait it out and eventually return back to Syria when they could. Oh, wow. In fact, the majority of people um, would have preferred to go back to Syria much sooner and, and have no desire to go to Europe or to America. So I remember those pleas on television in the 80s and 90s with Sally Struthers. In Central America, for 70 cents a day, you could help a child like Maria, who received an operation to restore her sight. Today... So many children around the world still need your help. And through Christian Children's Fund, you can reach out to one of them by sharing, well, just a little of your pocket change. It takes I want to push little. back on this idea that this is new or disruptive or revolutionary. Isn't that, isn't that idea of uh, sort of adopting an individual person or family, isn't that a, quite an old idea? You could say that, and I actually am I'm familiar with this uh with this concept, and I used to watch All in the Family, too, where Sally uh, got her fame, I think, her star power. 
And um, I looked further into it because I always wondered, is is what I'm doing just simply a technological uh, advancement sort of on on that? And, you know, uh, I looked more into that charity and uh, they actually uh, are a traditional style of charity that uses this method as sort of a bit of a trick. But they if you look closely, they take all of the funds that they receive and pull them together and then they take those funds and pay out to local uh, charities to run programs. So even though you might sponsor a child and be able to connect with them uh, through that organization, your money's not actually going to that particular child or they will still get the service if you weren't there. And that's what you're insuring. And do you do that uh, in a nonprofit model, a for-profit model? What kind of share do you take as HumanWire? Yeah, it's... Um, we're we're a nonprofit organization and, and working on our nonprofit uh, status again. Since we're so new, it takes many months, uh, which supposedly will be retroactive. So we're operating in that fashion. Although we have been considering of late uh, possibly abandoning that application and just making it a for profit business because it's uh, has a different kind of a business model. It's more of a self sustaining style of a business. So what, the donor or the host would pay something uh, to, to be a part of it, to sort of meet your overhead? Yeah, so what's really neat is it's a lot like um, a, a Kickstarter or sort of a crowdfunding site where um, people will contribute. But then at the moment when they're ready to contribute, our proposition is to say 100% of your funds will go directly to um, but then we will uh, just add a little bit of extra optional on top, which you can decide not to. So 100% can go to them and we'll take zero. Give me an example of the obstacles on the ground. It can't be an easy operate to an uh, environment to operate in. Um, what have you run into? Sure. Um, well, just last week we were shut down by the Lebanese army. <laughs> and um, we they just required that we put together some extra paperwork to comply. Um, we've... We're kind of a bit of a let's just uh, ask for forgiveness instead of ask for permission, and that, and I think that that's been helpful for us to sort of charge ahead and just take care of things instead of wait to get a sign off. What did it mean, just briefly, that you were shut down by the Lebanese? Oh, we just they wanted us to provide ad- additional documentation for the way that we operated. We actually had been working with them, and um, they, for example, we will use the WhatsApp app to to send them a note every single time we visit any particular camp and then when we leave again for safety purposes. So eventually they um, you know, said that based on the way that we were operating, we needed to shape our documents in a certain way. You have hosts in the U.S., Canada, and the U.K., and I think just a few from Colorado, including a family of CU professors who decided to go in person then to help the yeah. refugees. Yeah, that's what's really neat, too. They actually had created uh, courses and decided for their vacation they would come and, and meet some of the families and, and provide uh, workshops where the families were introduced to music and English and some computer coding. It was a great success. Just briefly, do you hope that these are lifelong relationships that are built? Absolutely. As I mentioned, it's sort of this the thing that's the most effective is when you can bring um, a network to somebody and bring these connections and that that's the, that's the key thing that's the most helpful. And five years from now, you could see 
somebody maybe wanting to get their artwork into a museum in Paris and that their host might have somebody who can help make that connection happen. Andrew, thanks for being with us. Thank you. Andrew Barron of Boulder is founder of HumanWire, an online platform to help Syrian refugees. Find a link at CPRnews.org. I'm Ryan Warner. This is Colorado Matters.